today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Graham McKay in the Hamilton Spectator today has a terrific cartoon of the Grinch. We are getting close to Christmas. The Grinch uh, saying to himself, I must stop Christmas from coming, but how? And next to him is a evil-looking, hissing Canada post box. Kind of makes the point. People are getting to be steamed about the strike that is going on right now, mostly because it seems the timing of it, maybe not even it seems, it is. The timing of it is designed to affect the most number of people in the public who are now the victims of this. This is driving people crazy. There is talk of government back-to-work legislation, but still uh, the carrier has already asked foreign mail services to stop sending packages. They say there's no way they can actually catch up at this point. So some stuff that is supposed to be delivered by Christmas will not be here. It is a mess. Joined by Professor Rafael Gomez, the director of the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. Professor, thanks for doing this today. Thank you, Scott. When I look at this, this one seems to me to be one of those strikes that I'm not sure who is hurting themselves more. Because at a time when we have email and e-transfers and Amazon and couriers and all these other things, is Canada Post in a strong position to be making a good case with their strike? By Canada Post, you mean the... The carrier, right? Yes, the, yes. The company. Um, no, because this is an ideal time to be recouping huge windfalls from the amount of. I mean, Amazon goods, uh, most of them, if you're not using a, a premium service, still get delivered uh, via the post. In fact, the the postal service has seen an uptick in um, delivery, precisely because of the online uh, growth of of retail um, and delivery services. So this is kind of an opportune time to be um, taking advantage of that. And, of course, this is the time when most packages get sent. Um, so from an s- institutional standpoint, you can see why the bargaining leverage definitely is on the side of the employees, you would think, except there's a wild card. And the wild card has been the federal government, which in the recent past and in the more distant past has decided to intervene in these uh, labor disputes. Um, which is kind of the worst of both worlds, because if you had a system that you were trying to design from scratch, you would, you would choose one of two options, arbitration. If parties can't come to some uh, agreement, you'd have uh, an arbitrator who would then maybe decide on the final points that couldn't be settled, but there'd be no strike. Or you allow parties to develop mature relationships by which they get to a bargaining uh, round and they get close to that um, time when the when the strike might occur or the the work uh, stoppage the lockout might occur and they come to a resolution um, but when you have this in between system where you supposedly have the right to strike and you go on strike and there's a cost on both parties and then on third parties like uh, citizens and businesses but then you legislate them back anyway what's the point of having had the strike why every, not just every, have yeah. had arbitration from the beginning and then the parties can sort of adapt to that because everyone's ticked off at that point well, yeah, and, it, and again, there, isn't, there is a value to allowing parties to negotiate, right? Because they, sure. actually, those kind of relationships are the strongest. Because even if you go through some troubling periods, if they work it out themselves, and you can see this in any relationship, if you work it out internally, it's going to lead to a stronger long-term solution. But, but by always intervening and then, you know, having the pretense of the right to strike, but then taking it away after the costs of the strike have been borne by many parties... It's the worst situation, and, and it's a consequence of history. We can't just blame the current government or even the current parties because they've been kind of been um, kind of grown up in this system, right? And so 
to change the turn the corner, you really need to be steadfast. If I was the government, I know it's it's painful, but short term pain for long term gain is allow the parties to to work this through because it would eliminate problems later. It oh. is it is though we we all are realists about this. If this wasn't an election year, maybe that happens, but I don't know that the government wants to allow the pain to go on oh, long sure. enough for people to remember. Yeah, that's that's a an important consideration, no doubt. But if they if if they'd had that concern, it should have then been made clear to both parties that they weren't going to allow the strike to happen mm-hmm. in the first place. See, right now the management isn't really bargaining, isn't coming to the table to finalize this deal. Um, and the reason is they kind of guess and suspect that there will be back-to-work uh, orders. And um, that's a problem. It's a problem that goes forward because the next round of bargaining, there'll be issues that people hadn't fully resolved because they were kind of imposed by an arbitrating decision. And uh, in the long-term interests of everyone, the parties, Canadians and businesses, it would be best to, to let the parties figure it out. The uh, You made an interesting point right off mm-hmm. the top about how this is the time to recoup and really to build your business, build mm-hmm. your brand, make some of that money mm-hmm. back. It's interesting, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, mm-hmm. uh, the, the head of that says that two-thirds of its members, and there's something like 110,000 members across the country, two-thirds of them in a poll said they are less likely to use the mail service in the future because of this disruption. Two things. Uh, one, that seems to be bad news for the Postal Service if it happens. But two, do you believe that or is that just frustration speaking right now? Um, I guess as a, as a sort of social scientist, you say the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I, I, that's what people say, what they do based on a practical uh, cost-benefit analysis. I think the Post, you know, one of the reasons they're not as eager to get back to the table is because y- people rely on the Post Service still for the bulk of any mailed um, uh, items, right? So that's more bluster than I think. Um, but it's a, it's a, an indicator of frustration that a lot of businesses feel. On the other hand, um, this could be a boon for brick and mortar retail. People that would have mm-hmm. otherwise done their ordering online are now maybe stepping onto their main streets and their small uh, businesses and actually frequenting more of the retail, which has been hit hard by uh, the growth of online. But that would be a temporary thing, even if that happened, right? Because once we have begun to swing towards that comfort level of buying stuff online, even if we have to go to the mall or go to the mm. store, when that comes back available, we're just going right back to that, right? Probably. I think the the trend has not been a blip. It's now been pretty consistent over nearly a decade, uh, the growth in online sales um, and the comfort level that people have now with technology and the frequency with which you can access, you know, the it's Wi-Fi everywhere, but also 5G networks mm-hmm. that allow you to be connected all the time. This has enabled uh, that sector, the online retailing, to grow. Yeah, We only have 30 seconds sure. left, but it sounds like what you're saying is mm-hmm. there really isn't much of a downside for Canada Post to going through this. I mean, it may be a, a pain in the butt. They may not be happy with it when it's over the agreement, if they're legislated back to work. But the reality is probably... Uh, six months from now, three months from now, we're back to exactly where we were. Yeah, I think if they, if they, if the Canada Post, the, the administration knew for a fact that this government was dead set on not intervening, then they would have been more, much more pressure to come up with a deal. Because they guessed, probably guessed right, that the government facing this political pressure in an election year, that they would have to intervene, they really didn't come uh, to the table to to bargain those over those issues that are really kind of hard to deal with at the very last stage of any bargaining relationship. 
Professor Rafael Gomez, uh, Director of the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Came across this thing on Twitter this morning. It is a seminar. I don't know if it's a seminar. It's a thing. It's a program, a seminar, a learning option opportunity that McMaster is hosting, and it's called Adulting 101. The name is sort of suggesting that the students are juvenile. I don't necessarily think that's the case, but Adulting 101, the idea is to teach people who come about credit, budgeting, and off-campus housing. It's about money. It's about teaching university students how to deal with their money, how to handle money. And it's a good idea. These are important things. These are things that people should understand, and you would hope that they will understand because it's a life lesson. It's something that you can apply as you go on, and you should apply as you go on. We don't want people who are financially illiterate moving out of university and getting into the workforce and into life and having no idea how to deal with their money. But the question I had as soon as I saw this thing on Twitter was, how is this necessary? Why is this necessary? How has this not been established and beaten into kids' heads in a positive way through elementary school, through middle school, through high school? How is this not something that is part of our curriculum, a huge part of our curriculum, so that we don't need seminars like this? I'm thinking to myself, when kids come out of high school with the idea being that high school is getting you prepared for adulthood, should this not be a big part of that? Teresa Cassioli, uh, you know her when she was in charge of Lakeport Brewery, turned that into a huge success. You would know her from there. But she is also passionate about this idea of financial literacy and has written a book called M is for Money. If you have young kids, you should go and buy it and give it to them for Christmas. It's coming up. Uh, In the meantime, maybe she'll give us a bit of a sneak peek right now because she joins us. Teresa, thanks for doing this today. Well, thank you for having me. I always love uh, speaking to you, especially around money. Well, yeah, I mean, the the older I get, and maybe it's because I've got kids who are now university age, but Teresa, it just strikes me that when I see something like this, while I applaud the idea, I applaud the effort, I applaud the people putting this together, it just seems like such an obvious thing to have put into our curricula all the way through school from the time kids start that I don't know why it's not. Well, it's not, and um, there is a leader of financial literacy in our country, and, uh, uh, you know, hopefully she will be able to encourage uh, the curriculum to change. Um, But in the meantime, you know, that is one of the reasons that I wrote the books um, for children ages 5 to 9, because research has shown that you need to instill these values around money uh, when the children are learning how to read and write. I mean, by the time they get to university, you're right. Now they have student loans. They've learned how to use apps. When I was a kid, there was no app. I would have to catch a bus to a store to buy something. I would have to have money in my wallet because I didn't have a credit card, nor did my parents. And so things have changed. I mean, you know, obviously I'm 57, so the world isn't the same. But with parents being very busy, with things not being in the curriculum, uh, these basic essential learnings don't happen. And so now they're in university and they have to learn basic skills. Um, So all the the young adults, because I'm very heavily involved with McMaster as well, all the young adults that I speak to, they say, boy, would it have been nice if we had learned these things way long ago? And so... Um, the books that I wrote, 
passionately, and, and by the way, the, the net proceeds of the books are going to charity, a children's charity, which I will be announcing within the next month or so, uh, which I've selected. But so, you know, I, I did this because I'm passionate about the fact that kids have to learn or they are going to be with their parents forever. Um, you know, financial independence won't happen if they don't understand how to get there. They have to understand that you have to earn the money before you spend it. And if you do go into debt, it has to be manageable. But all of these things, these conversations around money, have to start at a young age so that when there are decisions to be made, it isn't at a time when you're buying a pair of shoes on a mobile app and then they show up at your door and, you know, you're either asking your mother and father to to pay for the bill uh, because you don't know how to do it or you're going into debt. Well, and that's one, Teresa, that's one of the, you know, you mentioned, you've a couple times mentioned apps. And honestly, I think that is one of the things that has made this difficult is because if you're on your iPhone right now, you have like, say, an Apple um, app and uh, Apple Music or whatever, you buy stuff on there, you just click accept and you don't actually see any money exchanging hands. It doesn't feel like real money. You go on Amazon, you, if you have an account, you just hit pay and you've already got your information there. It doesn't feel like you are actually spending real money. So when you actually have to then spend real money, it, it, what do you do with that? How do you even know how to deal when you go to negotiate for something or even go get a, a, a lease on a place when you're at university or afterwards? None of this seems real. Uh, well, you know, I think it's, it's really, really important to, uh, to remember that these apps, um, you know, they, they ask you for a credit card in advance. Yes. So how are they getting access to credit cards without, you know, asking a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle? I mean, the answer has to be no if, if the, um, the, the card uh, or the, the spending is abused. So there has to be some accountability. So you, you, there's nothing saying that you can't use an app. What is important, though, is to make sure that these children or young adults understand the limits. They understand that there is consequence to the purchases and that they understand that there should be a budget. So if you allow your child uh, to or your young adult to use a credit card that you have, then you have to make them accountable if they overspend or if they um, if they aren't prudent with their with their choices. If there's no accountability, then they're just going to keep spending and they're going to have problems later. And, And in addition to that, Anyone who is fiscally prudent makes a really good employee. When they get out into the work world, they understand concepts like achieving targets and making sure you do things within budgets and understand the concept of planning. It's so difficult as an employer, you know, inheriting uh, employees that don't get money concepts, irrespective of whatever field they're in. We have sex ed programs in our schools and with good cause because people say kids need this because they are going to run into these issues. They're going to face these challenges as they go along, as they grow up. They need to know how to deal with these issues around sexuality uh, in their life. And I think, again, most people probably say, yeah, absolutely. We should have kids learning these kind of things because they are going to face these problems. Right. But the same challenges, the same Absolutely. things down the road exist for money, and we don't seem to have anywhere near the same level of urgency around well, that. Well, I, I really don't know, Scott, what it's going to take, because right now, Stats Canada indicated that for every dollar of disposable income, Canadians have a dollar eighty-one of debt. It's the highest since StatsCan has been issuing records. When people are going to wake up, I don't know. But our country isn't going to get stronger by having 
debt levels to this extent. Once you have one slight alteration to family circumstances, when you're in this kind of debt, you, you crumble. So it is so critical, and that's why I'm so passionate about it, and that it started at a young age, and you made a good point. Christmas is coming. If you have children that are able to read, that are ages 5 to 9, get the books, start those important conversations with them. The books cover topics like a loan and budgeting and saving and going to a bank and et cetera, et cetera, including charities, giving back. You have to start those conversations because they have to know at a very young age that those are the things you have to think about as you progress in life. You can't wait till you have debt that you can't manage uh, to go to a course. I mean, it's it's fantastic that Master's doing this because obviously there's a need at the, <laughs> that they've recognized at, a, at a, an older age. But boy, wouldn't it be great if we didn't need to do that, if, if kids already understood these important lessons before they actually got into the debt? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, so I just strongly encourage everyone, you can get my books at msformoney.ca. Again, the net proceeds are going to charity. Um for, for children, uh, but more importantly, you know, I did this and spent a couple of years doing it, writing the books, having them illustrated, uh, putting them on a website, um, you know, all of that, MS for Money came from my pure desire and passion to spread the word that financial literacy is important. And this month is Financial Literacy Month in Canada. Perfect. I mean, it should, it should be Financial Literacy yeah. Month every month. Um, but it's so important. And you're right. All the other things that, that um, need to be covered in school need to be there. But I think, you know, financial literacy is just as important as reading and writing. And, well, math. I, and I mean, look, I, at the risk of pounding the same issue over and over and over again, I, I can think back to what I learned in school and I learned about sine and cosine and tangent. I don't think in my life I've ever used that once. I remember <laughs> that Hadrian's Wall was built in 1066. I don't know that I've ever needed to apply that particular fact there are things, and I'm not diminishing the importance of those things, but certainly um, we do learn a lot of stuff in school that maybe, maybe we can find a few minutes to cram in some financial talk in there that are things that are going to apply to every single person's life when they leave that school. It's all about balance, Scott. I mean, there, it isn't that one thing is more important than another. It's just that it's about balance. You can't have a void. You need to be well balanced. And by not including financial literacy in the topics, uh, including budgeting, planning, you know, even at the high school level, you know, what is an income tax return? You know, things like that. Mm. So, you know, you, you have to have balance in your curriculum, but you shouldn't have massive voids of essential knowledge. And I think financial literacy is an essential knowledge. It's an essential skill. What do, and, what do kids learn in elementary school and middle school and high school about financial literacy? Well, they, they learn a little bit in the, through the math uh, curriculum, a little bit about, you know, um, the addition, subtraction, and, and money is used as the currency. Uh, but, you know, the books that I wrote are strictly on financial literacy, so they don't really fit into any particular um, scope right now because, yes, the budgeting book, for example, teaches them about how to make you know, decisions on a certain amount of money. You have $20, how can you spend it? So the, 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 the books cover lessons, but in a very um, subtle way. They're more stories about financial adventures that two little twins are, are, are experiencing. So 
you know, they they really this void as I, I as I spoke of, they're not that void is not getting filled right now. How could then? Okay, so your books are for five to nine, and they, they, they fill a void and they, they serve a purpose. But how could, right up through high school, how could this be taught? It needs to be part of the curriculum. So first of all, you have to teach the teacher. So you have to develop programs to teach the teacher on how to educate the concept of financial literacy. Uh, I think that you know banks and financial institutions need to take a leadership role as well. I partnered with First Ontario Credit Union for a reason, because they're taking a lead in financial literacy. You set up an account with them, you get the first three books. You put more money in, an RSP or something like that, you get the next three books. Other in, in, in incentives are to, to get the last three. So you, know, you partner with First Ontario, any one of those 32 branches, they're putting their money where their mouth is, and they're handing out these books because they believe financial literacy is important. And I think banks and financial institutions need to do more. Um, insurance companies, uh, anyone that uh, has dealings with finance, in addition to the schools, needs to do that. On my website, teachers can download free teaching guides where the activities and the lessons are already done so that they don't have to do any work or think about how they can apply these lessons in a classroom. So first teach the teachers, then formally adopt a curriculum starting in elementary school all the way throughout high school, that is a requirement that children and young adults need to pass, just like math, just like English. So, you know, I think it's important that they are approved and formally forced, if you want to call it that, to incorporate these essential life learnings before the debt levels in this country go through the roof even more. Uh, as I was getting ready to have you on, I, I, it got me thinking of, of why we don't do this already. Because again, it seems to me to be blatantly obvious. It seems to me to be something that doesn't require a ton of time within the curriculum. And we do have other things that can be combined with this. I was trying to figure out why it has never gotten the traction that it really needs. And I can't come up with a good, the, the best well, I could come up with, Teresa, is that someone believes that this, maybe this is classism or something, because some people have money and some don't, that someone will have their feelings hurt. I, I can't think of any other good reason. Well, I think it's just a matter of, you know, the curriculum in general, as they've learned through the, the, the topic around sexual education, needs to be changed. It needs to be updated. I mean, you know, there's things that, that have, have evolved, uh, including the, the way we deal with money. Uh, it's not the same as when you and I went to school. Now there are things like mobile apps. Now there are, you know, wallets in your in your app that you can carry credit cards and so on. All of that didn't exist. So it's about catching up with the times. And I think now more than ever, it's really important. In in the days that, you know, gone by, so to speak, you did have to carry cash. You did need to understand the basic money concepts because you didn't have access to credit like you do now. Uh, I think that there should be a few rules around, you know, handing out credit cards to just anybody should not happen. Um, that's my personal belief. Um, so I think that we're getting into trouble because the world is changing, but the curriculum, both in elementary and high school, are not. So that by the time they get to university, McMaster has to deal with it because the, the, the young adults coming through the program haven't had that opportunity. So. The reason it hasn't happened is because times have changed and the curriculum has not kept up, not just on the topic of financial literacy, but on other things, obviously, that we're learning. So I think it's just a matter of, you know, having the courage to lead 
an education program in this country um, that that is going to quickly adapt to changes to what's happening in society. And anything quick, you know, in government mm. really doesn't happen, right? Well, and I love your idea of the rules on some people not being allowed to have credit cards, which sounds elitist and sounds exclusionary. I understand that. But it's also a reality. The problem is you and I both know and everyone else listening knows that the first time someone is told, no, you can't have a credit card, you know what's going to happen so, and what's going to hit fans. So, well, um, I think that, you know, I, I'm always struggling with the booths and the kiosks that are put up in some, some educational institutions uh, when a lot of these kids have school loans, you know, and, and they're still trying to figure out how to pay those. You know, I think having a healthy amount of debt that is managed is good for you because then you focus on spending on things that are important, whether that be a mortgage or a school loan. But when you start using credit um, above your means, that's when you get in trouble. And sometimes people do it just because they don't know any better. There, things that, that you might take for granted because you were brought up in, that, in, the, in the way with no credit cards and you didn't really buy anything until you had the cash. You know, that's not the way of the world today. So. The one of the in institutions that can, can assist in this regard are schools, for sure. Another is just, you know, when you have a choice, you know, it's great to buy kids books. It's great to, you know, I even have interactive learning. You, can, you don't even have to buy the book. You can go on my website and purchase the inter interactive side where the kid actually, the kids actually jiggle the piggy bank and, and, and move the quarters over when to add up to whatever they need to buy. So there's many ways that you can introduce these topics. It's just that you have to have the courage to do that as opposed to potentially reading another type of story. Um, so it's really a conscious decision to make financial literacy part of the family unit, part of the school unit, part of the financial institutions. And, um, you know, I'm so proud that I, I was able to partner with First Ontario and, and uh, some other credit unions actually across the country have, have picked up on that idea. And I'm, I'm hoping that there are more leaders in that regard, uh, whether you are uh, a home builder, a realtor, a dentist, you know, put a book in the, in the waiting room, start the conversation. Exposure is what is, is the most uh, important thing that, that's required. And the more that people talk about it, the more it becomes a conversation. It will eventually, eventually change the curriculum. Just before I let you go, is it a coincidence in your mind that as we have had more and more kids get away from things like home economics and these kind of things, that the debt has gone up in this country? Is that is that connected? I think it's connected. I think, you know, listen, people sometimes do things wrong because they don't know any better. And when you teach them and bring bring it to the forefront, you can't force anyone to do anything, but at least you can make them aware of the topics. And so, you know, when we were in school, some of these things were front and center. As they don't uh, appear in schools anymore, then, and, and, and parents are busy, they don't have time to have the conversations like maybe they did in the past, I think that you have to have other sources to, to help. So um, eventually we're going to get there, Scott, or it's going to go the other way. So hopefully, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, hopefully... You know, hopefully my books as, as, as a, you know, small uh, provider of financial literacy services, and hopefully as we continue to get more leaders within the communities like First Ontario and other communities around our country, maybe this will make a difference. But I'm hoping that the teachers and parents and grandparents uh, start these really important conversations because uh, 
it, it, you know, the financial future of our country depends upon it. That is Teresa Cascioli. Uh, you can find her books, mismormoney.ca. If you've got some kids from five to nine years old, a uh, good Christmas present for them to learn something as well as to read it. Teresa, always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. All the best. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Friday night, Friday afternoon, Friday during the day, I don't know, Friday, there is a pay-per-view golf showdown between Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Pay-per-view means you don't get to just turn on your TV and watch it. You are going to have to pay if you want to see this particular showdown. And the question is, do you want to? First, I'm assuming most of you have heard about this to some degree. It's somewhere along the way. But is it something that has really grabbed your attention and you've said, you know, I love golf. I have got to watch this. Or are you saying to yourself, I can turn on the TV and watch golf every single weekend of the year. Why in the world am I going to pay $19.95 or whatever it is to watch these two guys play around? Adam Stanley is a freelance golf writer. He has appeared various places. He's one of the best in Canada. He joins us now. Adam, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks for having me. Uh, what are you? Are you just like gurgling with anticipation at this point and just counting down the minutes until this starts, or are you yawning? <laughs> so, prior, so I'm here in Las Vegas, and, and prior to coming down here, I was probably fair to Midland in terms of excitement level. But now that I'm here, and now that I saw them talking, and, and I saw them experience uh, the needling and, and actually trying to get under each other's skin and stuff like that, uh, it's been a bit of a slow burn, but now I'm super pumped. I, I think it's going to be pretty exciting. We're we're finally going to get to see, uh, you know, a little bit of the peel back the layers behind the scenes of what it's like for two PGA Tour pros to play, you know, on their home course. What it's like, how much money they're going to be paying in hands. I think it's going to be exciting. It's taken a while, but uh, I'm I'm excited. It should be should be a good match. They did have a press conference yesterday, and as you say, there was some some gentle needling back and forth. At one point, I think they've settled on a. What is that, a $200,000 side bet on the first hole to see if Mickelson would get a birdie? Yes, that's, uh, that's exactly what happened. Phil was going to bet 100000 and Tiger said, well, let's double it. So 200000 right out of the gate if Phil can make a birdie on the first hole. Now, see, I'm all for that, and I would find that exciting if Phil also says, and you can use whatever distraction devices you want to use. If Tiger <laughs> wants to pull out an air horn right in my backswing, Knock yourself. See now, pull it up to four hundred thousand, and let's go big time here. Um, I, don't, I don't know if uh, they're going to be able to add uh, aids like that, but we're going to we're going to see come Friday. Here's the thing: I have uh, these are two. Certainly, these are two of the golf world's. Uh, I don't think it's an overstatement at all. Certainly not with Tiger Woods, but two of the golf world's biggest all-time players. Certainly in the modern era, they would, I think, not even arguably be. Well, certainly, is it one and two or one and three or four I don't know where where would you put Mickelson in the modern era ranking of golfers I, I think two because if Tiger Woods never existed then Phil would have I don't know what he's got 40 some odd wins that's more than double uh the next person down and that goes all the way back to you know like a Davis Love type someone like that who's got around 20 so uh certainly certainly one and two in my opinion okay so you got one and two and and probably Adam if this had been 10 years ago this would, be, I really do think for a lot of people, this really would have been must-see TV. There, I think 10 years ago, this would have been unbelievable. 
100%, and I think it's because there would have been that little extra layer of animosity. It's not like they truly hated each other ever. I, I don't believe that to be true, uh, but they certainly weren't finishing each other's sentences like they were yesterday. So to add that little extra layer of, of intrigue a decade ago when Tiger Woods was, you know, the Tiger Woods of old, if you will, and Phil just starting to win majors, um, or even if it had been 10 or 15 years ago, Phil hadn't yet won a major, so he couldn't even uh, have that up against Tiger Woods. So it would have been a lot more intriguing. They probably could have commanded maybe double, $40 for it versus 20 Um But right now, you know, Tiger's coming in after after winning for the first time in a bunch of years and, and coming back from injury. Phil as well uh, won this year after, you know, five years of, uh, of a winless drought. So it's not like these guys are, are fully ready to hang them up yet. They're still competitive on the PGA Tour. So I think there's a bit of that intrigue, but now that they're friends, we've kind of lost a little bit of that uh, disdain for one another. I yeah, guess, see, that's, that's it for me right there is because I, I know it's politically incorrect to say that we want people to hate each other. And I don't really, <laughs> I mean, I don't want them to hate each other as in like fighting. I don't want a war to start, but that in sports, in the sports vernacular of hate, I kind of like my sports with a little bit of an edge. I would have loved it if these guys had played each other when one of them, and maybe it's still the case, it just doesn't come across like this. I wanted them to play each other in something like this when the thought of losing to the other guy would have burned at the soul of the of the yeah. other guy, that he could not have taken the ego shot of losing to him. That, to me, would have been ideal. Yeah, I mean, think about uh, Red Sox, Yankees, yes. Leafs, Canadians, yes. uh, Thai Cats, Argos, any of those. You know, there's that level of, of hatred. And to your point, the, the sports hatred. Um, and, and yeah, there definitely was that with Tiger Phil a decade, decade and a half ago, and that's fully gone now. But I think that there's still a lot of intrigue. I mean, these guys are throwing around sums of money. That just seems insane. You know, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. Uh, they were doing an interview with ESPN on the putting green yesterday, uh, and Phil bet Tiger on a 15-foot putt uh, $500 that he would miss it. Of course, Tiger makes it, and then Phil's like, okay, double or nothing, that uh, I, I'm going to make it too. He misses. He pulls out an apple-sized wad of cash and starts folding out crisp hundreds and starts giving it to Tiger. He flashes his megawatt smile, and it's just like, that's the first G I'm taking off you this week. And I was like, as if this is happening. So more of that, please. And that'll keep people interested on Friday. Maybe that's an indication that Phil figures that he's going to lose a lot of money. They had to bring an apple-sized wad of cash <laughs> that he's just going to start <laughs> handing it over to Ty. Just give him the whole wad to start with. Like, and that's another part about this. And I'm not trying to be too cynical about it, although this is obviously a financial thing. No one's doing this just for philanthropic or entertainment purposes. There's money to be made here. But they're playing for $9 bucks as the, the purse on top of whatever bets they make. $9 bucks to the, these guys is like me buying you a McDonald's coffee. Like it's nine, it maybe a little more than that, but I mean, it's not like $9 million is going to change either of these guys' lives. Yeah, I mean, Tiger was the, first, the world's first billion-dollar athlete. Phil, his, you know, he's got his own plane. I could go on and on. Uh, so you're right. It, it's kind of interesting that we are like, oh, nine million dollars. That's not that much, um, but it, but it is. And, and you know, to, to think that okay, these guys are going to putt for a thousand dollars on ten feet, like a thousand dollars, like that. It's a lot of money for just people who are watching. So I think that. You know, when they hear how much money, like 200 grand on one hole, I think that's going to keep people interested. They may not be as, you know, jazzed about it right now, but they're going to have this fear of missing out if the next day they read that, you know, it came down to 18 and they both 
you know, double or nothing the whole the whole purse for nine million on this one hole, and they didn't get to see it. So, it, it, there's a big question. There's a lot more questions than answers. But if it works, they both said that they want to do this uh, a lot more and, and maybe bring in some other names and, and see who else can can play along with them. But here's what I'm really hoping, cool. Adam. Here's what I'm hoping happens with to what you're saying about those extra bets. I want them yeah. to have something beyond money. See, right now it's money that they are being given. They're not losing anything. I want there to be a pot on 17 when Woods says. You make this, I give you my house in Florida. You lose, you miss this, and I get your plane. Like, let's make this thing so you lose something as well as gaining something. Let's put something on the line. I don't expect that to actually happen. Here is where, though, I find this story really interesting because I don't know what's going to happen down the road. If this thing works, I don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. I don't know how it's going to sell or not sell. I don't know how many people are going to buy the pay-per-view. If you were PGA Tour players, because we've always said, Adam, that Tiger Woods has been a money maker of all kinds for PGA Tour players. He he shows up, purses go up, attendance goes up, TV ratings go up, ad rates go up, everybody makes more money. But if this really works, is this a horrible thing for the guys in the bottom half of the points league, the money league on the PGA Tour, because suddenly TV says... Well, people just want to see the top two or three guys. We don't need to show you. We don't even need to have all you in the field here. We can chop our costs by half, by two-thirds, and just have the stars come out and play. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. The, the guys want to do more of this if it does end up working. Um, so I don't really know how much it's going to impact the PGA Tour itself. But, uh, you know, from what I understand, the guys aren't going to play for $10 million because the FedEx Cup prize is $10 million, and that was going to uh, PO some people from the PGA Tour. So, you know, I think there's a bit of a relationship still with the PGA Tour uh, for this particular matchup. Uh, moving forward, will there also be a PGA Tour relationship? Probably PGA Tour events are about a lot more than just stars coming out. I mean, they're about charity. They're about a lot of different things. So uh, there's always going to be a place for the top 125 golfers in the world. Uh, there may just be more opportunities for guys to grow their bank account uh, if they so happen to be in the top 10 in the world or something like that. Well, how many times have we watched a tournament in the last... Now, you're right. Tiger Woods has certainly climbed back. He's now winning again. But in the last five years, while he's been wandering in the wilderness, how many times have we watched a tournament where he is either not going to make the cut or is in 57th spot, and yet every single Tiger Woods shot is shown on TV while the leader, you might see every, two out of every three. There's, yeah. it, it's clear that he is the guy still driving this thing. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he, he doesn't just move the needle. The guy is the needle. Everything yeah. is kind of measured up by, by Tiger Woods and what events he plays and where he goes. And, you know, attendance figures, if he misses the cut, uh, they'll drop down on Saturday, Sunday. But people are just interested in the guy. He did something that nobody had ever done before in terms of winning in such a dominant fashion. And uh, people may not do it ever again. So we were witnessing history, and to see Tiger win uh, at the Tour Championship was, you know, it, it wasn't just a, a good victory for golf it was this nostalgic win that we all got to think of uh when we saw a tiger you know play 20 years ago or whatever it was so um it's going to be interesting uh, who knows what the future is going to hold for other players to be part of it uh tiger obviously is the guy that if this was Rory versus justin thomas for example probably wouldn't have gotten as much hype but tiger's involved um so people are going to watch well, if you, again, using this example, if this thing goes well, could you someday see 
uh, I don't know, let's say CBS when they're showing the Masters. Now, the, the Masters is different because the folks who run Augusta have an awful lot of say in everything, even on the TV yeah. coverage. But So let's, leave, let's not choose the Masters. Let's choose another tournament. Tiger Woods is in it where they have their main network showing the field and they've got a secondary channel somewhere in their cable package just showing Tiger Woods for the entire round. And you want to know something? There would be days when I would bet you that that channel might actually get more people than the network channel. Yeah, I I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think, you know, you don't even have to look at uh, anything beyond the golf channel's Tiger Tracker on Twitter and to see how much engagement that thing gets and how many people are just always wanting to know how good or how bad Tiger Woods does. So can I see a world where maybe there's just the Tiger Woods channel? Uh, Yeah, I absolutely can see that. If he had been coming along today, as opposed to when he did, because he just he just beat a lot of the apps and everything else, uh, I, I w- I'm with you. I guarantee you, those things would have all existed by now. That you would have, we would have been able to watch him by himself, probably on every single round of his career. Yeah, you think about um, individuals, whether they be rock stars or athletes, and how everyone's got their own brand. And and certainly, if if the Tiger Woods brand came along, you know, a decade and a half later. Um, for sure there would be the Tiger Tracker app on my phone. And I don't really know if his personality would lend itself well to that, but as far as his golf course, uh, on-course stuff goes, 100%. You could carry uh, you know, Tiger Woods' stuff around with you in your pocket. So, um, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. What about the personality? Because you mentioned a few minutes ago, and it was, a, it was a great point, that one of the features of this is to peel back the curtains a bit. And I think that they're both going to be mic'd up, right? Yes. So, so the idea is that you'll be able to hear them jibing each other, jabbing each other, or making these bets or whatever else. But do you think maybe Mickelson, maybe? But do you think Tiger Woods? He is so aware. He has been under a microphone, and he knows where every mic and camera is. Do you really think he's going to say anything that is going to stir the pot or be even remotely? something that could hurt the brand. I, I, I think Mickelson may say something. I don't expect to hear anything really from Tiger Woods. Maybe I'll be surprised. Yeah, you may be pleasantly surprised. I think I mean, think about everything that Tiger Woods has kind of brought onto himself in terms of, you know, his extramarital affairs and stuff like that. I think I think the brand has been pretty hurt overall, and, and I don't really know what he could say more of that would hurt it any further than what had already happened. Um, but the fact that this isn't on cable, it's not really a quote-unquote kids show. Somebody has to pay to watch it. There's going to be swearing. There's going to be jokes that are probably somewhat on the dirty side. There's going to be things that I think people are going to hear if they go to the golf course and they tee it up with their buddies, and I think that's the vibe that they're going to try to give off. And, and it remains to be seen. Maybe they'll just start to get hyper-aware of the microphones and they'll get into this locked-in mode where it's a usual tournament and it's like, oh, I better not say something because the mic's there. And then they'll have to be like, oh, wait, I can say whatever I want because this isn't a regular tournament, something different. Um, so to your point, you might be pleasantly surprised, and I'm hoping that people will be pleasantly surprised at what they hear and see and uh, how much fun these guys are going to have. So we just have a couple minutes here, but where does it go from here? If Again, if this, thing, if this thing doesn't work, if this thing doesn't sell well, it's probably the last time we'll see it. But if it works and if there are a bunch of people that put their money down, you can't just keep doing Phil and Tiger over and over again. And as you said, there's not enough other huge name guys people would do. So do you, could you see down the road them having some sort of like elimination tournament or something with these kind of things? Or what, what could possibly happen? Because I don't, no sport, including the PGA or including the guys behind this, are going to turn up their nose if they've suddenly stumbled onto a winner. 
No, exactly. And I think, you know, and, and Tiger and Phil are, are businessmen just as much as the businessmen who are uh, behind the, the match uh, are as well. So uh, where do I see this going? I think, you know, we could do teams. That would be the most logical thing. Um, you know, Tiger's gets to pick one guy. Phil gets to pick one guy. Uh, maybe they get to pick, uh, you know, another three guys. So they round out a foursome and they do it that way. Uh, maybe we'll get um, some golfers from the LPGA Tour involved mm-hmm. as well. They tried that a little bit with Annika Sorensam and Carrie Webb and, and Tiger Woods back um, in the early 2000s. So wouldn't be surprised if that works. Uh, and maybe Tiger's a captain and Phil's a captain, and they pick teams and they don't even play, but they're just involved and they're part of the commentating squad. I think there's options, but I do think Tiger's going to have to be involved. Phil, a little bit less so, but I think if Tiger's involved, Phil's going to want to be involved as well. If it works, it's a big if, and we'll see Friday. Yeah, celebrities. I mean, they'll turn it into a, a pro am, yeah. like the the what, what is it? Bob Hope, or they have the um, where's the or Pebble it's Beach? T and Pebbles, yeah. yeah, Pebble Beach, where they have the pro. And you know what? I mean, some of those people that you, you couldn't care less about watching, but when you get Charles Barkley or you get uh, Bill Murray or Ray Romano or whatever, I mean, all of a sudden you go, oh, I can wa-, even though they're not golfers, I can watch them for a while. Yeah, exactly. Uh, last thing before we let you go, you're a golf you're a golf guy. I understand that. But it does make me wonder also, I have to believe that every other sport, every other major sport is going to be watching how this thing works. And I suddenly had this thought, you know, if again, if this thing works, do we start seeing Maple Leaf playoff games all of a sudden for nine ninety nine? Do you see other sports try to latch onto this or is this only something that could work in golf or maybe tennis or some other solo sport? Yeah, I think the the individuality of golf and tennis, I think that would work. Um, I I really don't see how team sports could make this happen uh, unless they start to uh, give you unprecedented access to the locker room or the players are mic'd up or you get something that you wouldn't normally get on regular Mm. cable. It's something that you would have to pay for. It's, you know, the premium content model that newspapers and uh, places are all trying to figure out right now. But if a team wants to offer, you know, for 10 bucks for this game, you get Austin Matthews mic'd up for the whole game. You get to listen in and you get a separate feed. People will pay for that. And, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what other sports do, but this is a big time test and, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be fun, hopefully, and um, we'll have to see what other sports want to do with it. But for right now, I think golf or, or tennis, individual sports, is, is where this could work. Adam Stanley, he is a golf writer. Uh, listen, enjoy the time down there. I appreciate you taking some time for us. Thanks, man. No worries. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.